Thanks, Faith. Um, I'm just going to pray real quick once more uh, for us before we get rolling. Uh, so, Lord Jesus, we thank you again, as Faith said, for the opportunity to gather, to uh, listen to your word, um, and to be encouraged by the fellowship of one another. We pray tonight that as we open your word, uh, it does what you promised it to do, that it actually encounters our hearts and changes us, um, because the, you have given us a word that interacts with us. Um, it's not the power in the person who is speaking, or in the room that we're in, or in the, the people that are around us, but your word has a power to change our hearts. So we pray that that happens tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So it's football season. Uh, I love football season. My life kind of seasonally goes like pre-football season, post-football season, football season. That's kind of the three stages of my life. And with that comes fantasy football. And I'm, we're in like a quarter of the way through the fantasy football season, and now people are starting to trade their fake football players on their fake teams to fake people. And so I get trade requests all the time, like, hey, are you interested in this player? And I'm like, yeah, I'm interested in that player. I mean, who wouldn't want the top five player you're telling me? The question is always, well, what's it going to cost me to get them, right? Who wouldn't want? Think of the thing you want. If someone came up and said, hey, wouldn't you like to cut two minutes off of your mile time? Wouldn't you like to be able to get better grades? Who would say, no, nah, I'm good? Right? The reason we say no is we want to know, well, what does it cost? What does it cost me? And we know this. I know this because I had, there's a salesman who came and caught me. Really, he, like, have you guys ever encountered a good salesman? Like, there's nothing you could say to get away from them. It's like, sorry, I got to go. My, my mom's dying. He's like, ah, oh, that's all right look at this trinket. And they, I don't know how they, I don't even, I can't even like recreate it, but it's like this lure. And so I tried every trick in the book. I'm like, uh, my house is burning down. I forgot my pants. I got to go. And yet there I was standing in the driveway with this guy. He was selling me this cleaning solution. And do you know the solution? So, so he's like, this will clean anything. And so what he did first is he like went down to my car and I don't know what's in this bottle. It's this mystery bottle. He just starts spraying stuff on my wheels. But he's like, look at this. And sure enough, my wheels that were like super dirty and rusty, he like cleaned it off. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty sweet. And then he's like, uh, I, I can't remember if he poured something to stain my concrete. And I'm like, that's not cool. Or if he found a giant stain on my driveway and he's like, watch this. And so he, he gets down and like sprays the, the concrete and uh, just wipes it up like it was nothing. And I was like, this guy's packing some power in his little magic squeeze bottle. And, uh, and he's like, hey, would you, are you interested in this cleaner? I'm like, yeah, this is pretty sweet. How much is it? And he's like, it's $70 a bottle. And I'm like, oh, that's, <laughs> my grandma's dying again. Um, and, and so what was interesting is like the product worked, right? It did what it was supposed to do. But the thing we assess in terms of cost and benefit is not only does it work, but is it really fixing a problem? Like, is it really worth me to clean my tires that I have cleaned? That's it. That was the time my tires were clean, like when he did that. Or a stain on my driveway. Is that really enough of a problem that it's worth me spending $70 on it? In other words, to consider the cost of things, you not only consider what it does, but you consider what it solves. And in this series we're working through at GCF, it's called Worth It, because we want to look at whether following Jesus or not is worth it. What does it cost to follow Jesus? You hear that all around. You hear us talking about it in here. We want to follow Jesus. And you might say, that's a good idea. It sounds nice to follow Jesus. It sounds nice to maybe believe the things that Christians talk about. But what does it really cost you? And what does it really fix? 
And this is an interesting thing in scripture because there's this paradox that Jesus says following him costs everything. Jesus says, lay down your life, pick up your cross and follow me. But then other places, there's guys like the apostle Paul who says following Jesus costs nothing. He says, I consider everything as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So it costs everything and it costs nothing. And so there's this paradox inside of Christianity that if we want to understand what we really have to do is we have to look at the gospel. Because the gospel, what Jesus did to save sinners and restore us to God is what tells us what is really wrong and then what is the greater solution to the problem the gospel says we have. And it just so happens right now, we are looking at is the gospel worth it in terms of our relationships, in terms of how we view one another. And this is kind of timely and in a way unplanned because our series we're in at Sovereign Hope, uh, which is the church that we're through, Uh, is dealing with that right now. We're in a series called Gospel-Focused Families and Relationships, and it's trying to look at how does the gospel change the way we interact with one another. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. The first thing we're going to look at is what's broken with our relationships. Then we're going to look at how the gospel changes it, specifically how the gospel changes every relationship we can have. Meaning, how does the gospel change you as an individual without having a spouse or uh, uh, kids? How does you, relating to any other person, how does the gospel change that? How does the gospel change you as a spouse or potential spouse will relate to your spouse? And how does the gospel change the way you as a potential parent will relate to your potential kids? And you might be saying, hold on, little overzealous here. I'm trying to like figure out how to pay for Jakers and you're telling me how to parent my kids. Um, let's ease it back a little bit. But the point is we need this. We, we already are caught up in this current of relating to one another out of a specific uh, agenda and idea. And we need something to fix our gaze on. We need to look at something that's going to shape how we relate to one another because the truth is we are relationally bankrupt. We have zero capacity and zero uh, kind of resources to relate to each other well. And you might say, well, that's really pessimistic, especially for a Christian group. Uh, But I want to ask you this. Don't raise your hands. How many of you have been hurt by a friend relationally? How many of you have been hurt by a boyfriend or a girlfriend for those of you who are married in here, Hala Alvarez's, uh, how many of you have been hurt by your spouse? Now you guys can raise your hand. No. Um, <laughs> how many of you guys have been hurt by your parents? And the question is, why is that such a big deal to us? Why is it that we so commonly encounter pain in our relationships, but we want to think it's wrong that we'd be treated that way? In other words, what encounter or what truth did you believe at one point in your life that gave you this idea that you deserve to be treated differently? That you, something happened where other people have an obligation to treat you in a specific way. You see, most of our conversations culturally when it comes to pain in relationships rotate around what we deserve, right? She doesn't deserve you. You deserve better. Who taught us that? Who taught us there's this obligation in how we relate to one another? Because uh, in terms of evolutionary biology, we don't get this there. The rule of evolutionary biology is no one owes you anything. Take it. If you want to survive, take what's yours. Right? Why should we care about serving the poor and helping the needy 
all that's doing is taking resources from the strong and giving it to the weak. And that actually hurts civilization. We should feature the strong. That's how civil, if, if we got here by survival of the fittest, then we're not going to get better by throwing that principle aside. If humanity thrived off overcoming the weaker ones and using them to our own strategic advantage, then certainly our moral compass of relationships can't come from biology. Now, most of you in here, because the culture of the day is less tuned into like hard facts and we don't go out in the world and encounter science the way maybe our parents did, we, we look to things like, where do we get the code of our relationships? And we say, maybe culture, right? We live in an entertainment age where we are consumers of so much information through the media of Netflix and Twitter and Facebook. And what are the stories? And I'd love to hear more. When we go to Jaker's afterwards, this will help me even as we preach this series. I want to hear your guys' experience with this. But it seems the narrative, when it comes to imagining yourself with somebody, is find your best fun, your best fun, your best fun, and your best friend, um, and you guys will be the greatest buddy movie ever, and you'll overcome all your problems together, arm in arm, like friends for life. Or find your soulmate, and you'll live happily ever after. But isn't it a sad irony when we watch these TV shows and we follow characters through like these nine-year seasons or we watch movies that we watch again and again and again, whether they're buddy films or romantic comedies, and we love, like we, this is the picture of what we want. If we could say what a friend is, that's our friend. If we could say what we want our soulmate to be, that's our soulmate. But then when those characters, the real people behind those characters, actually in those rare moments like fall in love with that person in the movie, or they become best friends with that, we celebrate it only to find like two years later, they're either divorced or in some petty Twitter feud about how they've offended each other. Like even the most picture perfect models of what we say, that's it. It doesn't sustain it. Relationally, we're broken and we don't know what to do. You see, the world has no justification for why we have an obligation of treating each other differently and it can't provide a better one. You see, all it does from those views, the biological sense or just the cultural sense, it misplaces God. The, the evolutionary biology view, it just takes God out of the equation. There's no order. There's no obligation. There's no one saying you should or shouldn't do this because it's all just arbitrary growth towards the strong surviving. But then culturally, it makes you to be God, right? You should serve me. You should complete me. You should satisfy me. You should care about me and solve all of my problems. But it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually puts God in the proper space, defines him, and then calls us to fall in line after that. The gospel changes our view of not only how we view God, but how we view God changes the way we encounter other people. And that's why Faith read that story for us. If you have your Bibles or your phones, you could turn to Matthew chapter 18. That is a really important story for us to consider. And I'm not going to look at it in the text. I'm just going to kind of tell it. Because a lot of times when we read the Bible, we like black out. And it's like I'm reading scripture and I'm not really listening. So I want to tell the story. But it's in Matthew 18 verses 21 through 35. If you guys want to look at it later or while I'm going through this. And so here's the gist of it, right? Here's, there's a king of a kingdom. Actually, what I think is really funny before it is Jesus' disciples come to Jesus and he's like, hey, Jesus, how much should I forgive somebody? Like seven times? Did they just fail at exaggeration in biblical times? Like, <laughs> like who goes, he's like, how much should I forgive? Three times? 
Is that it? Just three and then like not even 10, just like seven is this good number for them to start at. Like they did the, well, five is too little, eight is too much. Seven, seven's probably what Jesus will say is good for me. Um, and so they go and they ask Jesus, how much should we forgive? And Jesus tells this story. And there's a story of this king and he summons his servant to him to extract a debt that the servant owed. And you can imagine how intimidating this situation already is. Here's a servant before a king. Already, there's a huge difference in your social status. King, servant, privilege, kind of subjugation. And even more so, the king is like, you owe me money and I want it. And what's interesting is the Bible doesn't tell us how the servant got into debt, but I believe the implication is, is probably through ill will, right? It's probably through this servant embezzling money or fraudulently taking it from the king or being entrusted with resources and taking it for himself. And so not only does he owe a debt, but it's not like the king just gave out this generous loan like a bank and now the servant is defaulting on it. But this servant has a debt when all the wealth was already the king's. And he says, I I want it. And the amount of that debt is 10,000 denarii. And so face translation said bags of gold because it's a vast amount. In fact, one denarii is roughly 20 years of labor. Okay, 20 years of labor. And so if you extrapolate that out of 100 of those, or 10,000 talents, excuse me, a talent, not a denarii, denarii is later. A talent is 20 years wages. And this servant is due 10,000 talents. That is 10,000 times 20 years of work. That is 2,300 lifetimes of labor. What I want to know is what did this servant do with the money? (laughs) Like, did he come in with like peacocks on both shoulders and like robes of gold? He's like, what's up, king? I don't know where your money went. Because he obviously doesn't have anything to pay the king back with. And that's kind of the the entrapment of this text is he is due such a great sum and the king's like, take him in prison, take his wives in prison, take his children in prison until they pay it back because he can't possibly pay this back. There is no way this servant can pay back 2,300 lifetimes of labor. And the truth is, is in a kingdom like this, the only person who could possibly pay that debt back was the person from whom it was probably stolen, was the king himself. No servant is walking around with what would probably be the equivalent if you did the nerdy math of somewhere between two and three billion dollars. And so the man falls down on his knees before the king. He begs him. He realizes he has nothing but pleading for the king's mercy. And the king says, okay, you can go. He forgives 2,300 lifetimes of debt and the dude stands up and you can imagine the joy he has. There, uh, one of our elders at our church lives in this uh, wooden cave house up in the woods and uh, it's a nice house. I just wanted to make it sound sketch because there's a bat living in it and they didn't know it until they saw a bat flying through the house and the health department's like, you don't, they couldn't catch the bat. It's like, you don't know if it bit you. you your whole family, which is uh, he and his wife and then three kids need to get rabies shots. Um, otherwise, it's a health hazard. The bill of the rabies shots was around $10,000. And he, so they went and got the shots because it's like better to pay $10,000 than to foam at the mouth for the rest of your life and die. Uh, and so, but the hospital 
So I remember he submitted a prayer request, like, we really need prayer. It's a big cost. We need to do it. Um, and the hospital forgave the debt. So you don't have to pay. And like the elation they experienced was huge. And they told everybody about it. This dude, $10,000 was like, he owed that in a second. And he was just forgiven it. As you can imagine, the elation he has as he leaves the court of the king and he's walking around. All of a sudden, this other servant comes up who owes 100 denarii. 100 denarii, which is roughly 100 days wages. That's a lot of money, but it's nothing compared to 2,300 lifetimes of wages. And he comes and he doesn't go, oh man, it is your lucky day because it just so happens I know what it's like to be forgiven a debt. And so he like strangles the man and says, pay what is owed. And he has him thrown away. And this is even a servant to another servant. The first servant was king to servant. And here a peer comes to him owing a lesser debt and he demands it from him. And what happens is the other servants see this because the other, the kingdom had to heard what happened, right? This is a huge debt that was repaid. And they go tell the king and the king takes the first servant and says, you wicked unforgiving servant. I forgave you all your debt and you can't forgive this man. And Jesus says, the point of the story is you need to forgive from your heart. Now, have you ever thought, how many of you heard that story before? A lot of you, most of you. Have you guys ever thought about why? Why would this first servant not forgive this man? Like, do you think he was just this criminal from day one, just this terrible, wicked person? He could have been. But even criminals we see in our movie shows, our movie shows, <laughs> on your TV machines, uh, <laughs> they have moments of, of grace and generosity. And so I was thinking about this, why is it? Well, one reason is perhaps that he felt obligated to pay the king back. Kind of like the mobster saying, hey, I forgive you your debt, but it's coming due someday. And so he sees this man, it's like in terror. He's like, you will give me that money because someone else is coming for it. I owe a bigger debt to somebody else and you better give me that money. I need to start collecting that now because I still owe, still owe the king. Maybe that's one, terror. Feeling obligated to do something that the king gave him free forgiveness on. Maybe the other is that uh, he had this great encounter with this king. He was this lowly servant, walks into the courts of the king, owes a massive debt and the king forgives him. He must be something special, Right? Here the king is, the king forgives him that he, he must be pretty big in the kingdom of the king. The king must appreciate him. And he runs into this man and after the king forgives him, he's like, certainly you owe it to me. If the king can forgive 2,300 lifetimes to me, pff, you better give me 100 days wages. I'm a big deal and it's due to me. And you see, if we don't understand this parable rightly, we, like the unforgiving servant, will either leverage people for our own gain or dominate people for our own self-worth because we feel we have to fill up something that is lacking. I either see you and demand something from you or I either see you and I want to use what you can provide me. But the point of Jesus' parable is that this is the gospel. You see, it's not like Jesus is sitting there and he's like, hey, there's a great, this is a great story. Imagine there was a king and everybody owed a debt to this king and the king forgave it when you came to him for mercy. This is the very heart of the gospel itself. And look, listen to how Paul speaks of our salvation in monetary terms in, second, or in Colossians verses 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You see, this story is so relevant to us because our sin incurred a real debt against us, a debt that we ourselves cannot pay back. In fact, the man in this story and his 2,300 lifetimes of debt had a better chance of paying off that debt than you do of paying off your debt of sin to God. But that feeling of helplessness should be, you can't pay it back. You will spend a literal eternity waiting for that payment to be made due. And it will never come, but it's obligated against you. You can do nothing to get rid of that debt. Only the king can. Only the king can do something about the obligation that stands against you. And that's just what our king did. We came to him with lifetimes upon lifetimes of wrongdoing, of rejecting what was due the king in terms of our worship. We took it from him and we worshiped other things. We worshiped ourselves. We worshiped our friends. We worshiped our phones. We worshiped anything we can. We took what was meant to be God's in his treasury and we gave it to other people. And that God, that king saw our debt and he forgave it, not merely by releasing us from it, but by sending his son to pay every last penny himself. Jesus filled the debt that we lacked by extracting it from his own relationship with his father. And here's why this is important. Because we talk about the gospel a lot. And most of you in here, I imagine, have some sort of familiarity with the idea that Jesus uh, died for our sins. And if you don't, I'm so glad you're here. And if I say things you don't understand, come and talk to me afterwards about it. But what this story shows is if all we do is we see our infinite sin against God and we see that Jesus came and he's the forgiveness, there's a missing factor in the parable and that's that that debt needed to be paid. But that's why the gospel is bigger than the parable. It's paid in Christ. And if we see that, we see what Jesus did, forgiving us this massive debt and all we do is we take that forgiveness and we say, oh, look at what I got. This is great. Look at what Jesus did for me. And then turn away And that forgiveness has no impact on the lives of those around us, then we don't understand the gospel. You see, Jesus is talking here in the sense of forgiveness, but his point is much more broad, and that's if the gospel is only about your experience with God and doesn't shape the experience you have with anyone else in your life, then you don't really understand what you experienced in your salvation. You haven't seen the debt that stood against you and sat under the weight of your inability to do anything to relieve it. You see, if we encounter anyone in our world and we see them without understanding what was forgiven us, we're not applying this parable to our hearts. If we encounter and see people without the grace that God has lavished upon us, we are neglecting the beauty of what Jesus did for us. We don't understand its worth. And because of that, what Jesus is saying is you miss the whole point. And that's why we are taking time at church and we are taking time here to say the way you encounter other people as a single person, as a married person, as a parent, as a child to a parent, as whoever you are, God cares about that. 
because the gospel should shape the love and the forgiveness and the respect we give those around us. No one can make up our debt except for Jesus. So it's only in looking at how Jesus overcame our debt that we can ever begin to rewrite what culture and science has woven into our minds. You see, without the gospel, all we can do is glorify ourselves and use others, but with the gospel, we can glorify God and serve others, okay? That's the whole principle of what we're looking at here and what we'll be looking at on Sunday. Without the gospel, the best we can do is to glorify ourselves and to use others, but with the gospel, we can glorify God and serve others. So what does this look like? We like this idea. What does it look like? Three pictures that we're just gonna look at in closing that we look at what Jesus did for us and it shapes how we interact with people. And so first we're gonna start with you as an individual, like as a single person, as an entity that is not somebody else, okay? That's what I'm trying to communicate. Individually, this is it, is that you live like Jesus. Individually, you live like Christ. This is what we talked about at Sovereign Hope two weeks ago, and that's because we were made, why do we live like Christ? We were made to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 6, God says this, I, uh, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. So God is gathering his people, and he says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed, and I made. So why were you formed? Why were you made? To glorify God. God created you. You have breath in your lungs. You have movement. You have uh, your brain. You are in this place because God wants you to glorify him. So what does it look like for us to glorify God? Well, we see two pictures. The Bible gives two pictures of how we as individuals should glorify God. There's what's called Adam, who is the first man, And then there's Jesus as the new Adam. And if you look at Genesis, it's not just the story of how everything was made that we learn in Sunday school. It's actually the whole point of creation. Adam was made to glorify God. And what did God say? He said, obey me, love your wife, fill the earth, serve it, and you'll glorify me. But what did Adam do? He disobeyed God, and then he threw his wife under the bus. (laughs) He didn't glorify God, and he didn't serve others. And that's why we're in this mess is because Adam, as the, the first individual, could not do what God called him to do. But that's why Jesus, as the new Adam, is a better model and a greater head. Because Jesus perfectly obeyed God and perfectly served other people, even to the point of his own death. And we see Jesus himself giving this command in the book of Mark, where he says this, The two things that Jesus is emphasizing from all the Bible, he boils it down to two things. He says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. So there's the glorifying God part. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, as an individual, because your goal is to glorify God, you relate first and foremost, how many of you met somebody new here tonight? Met somebody you've never met before. Great. The Bible says when you meet them, your lens should be, how does this relationship glorify God? And the immediate answer is, how can I serve this person? 
How can I give this person respect? How can I give this person dignity? How can I introduce most ultimately serve this person by introducing them to the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, Jesus gave his life and glorified God and loved other people, but it's not glorify God and love other people. Jesus glorified God by loving other people and giving his life to them. And that's what he's called us to do. Imagine if the first encounters you have with your peers, with your roommates, was shaped by the God's call to glorify him, to make him known, and to love that person you're with. Isn't it so easy to say, glorify me and serve me? I was in college. I went to a campus ministry uh, like five times, and I went to find somebody to date. That's why I went. I walked into that room, and every woman I saw, I said, which one's going to be the lucky gal to date me? (laughs) Answer, none of them did. (laughs) Turns out you have to be bold enough to talk to women, and that was the problem. (laughs) I was waiting for them to ask me to do something. uh, But here's the thing. Is it so easy to default to seeing people as commodities? But with this, we glorify God and we serve other people. That's what we're expected to do. Imagine if you served other people to the glory of God in every sphere of your life. How would that shape your interactions? Because here's the thing, as a single college individual, if Jesus has paid all of your debt, you don't need someone to complete you. You don't need someone to then offer to God is, look it, I have a, I have a girlfriend, I have a boyfriend, I have a spouse, I have kids. Doesn't that make me a Christian? You don't need any of that because Jesus was the provision for you. Jesus lived perfectly where you can't. Jesus met the demands that you could have never paid. And so we don't have to cling to people as commodities or as comforts because Jesus is our only comfort. And here's the thing. This is so important to understand, especially for you guys, because we're on the stage of, do I, am I single? Should I be looking for a boyfriend or girlfriend? Should I be considering a spouse? This is the most important thing you can understand, and that is this. If you see what Jesus did to forgive that debt, to satisfy what you owed to God, and to bring you complete and total satisfaction in and of himself, you don't need anything. You need to obey God, to be part of his church, to glorify him and to love other people. And you are fully equipped to do that as a single person. Why is that so important? Because it means we don't look to boyfriends or girlfriends or spouses or kids to meet a need that only God was meant to need or to fit. So that means romantically, so the first thing is individually, we live like Christ. Romantically then, we love like Christ. So this is what we're talking about on Sunday. And so here I have a, at Jakers, if I say things in this part that are unclear, tell me so I could try to not make it Tyler unclear on Sunday uh, when you get to church. And so here's this. The premise is this, because only Jesus saves, because only Jesus forgives our debt, because only Jesus frees us, we don't need to find any man or woman to complete us. You don't. You never enter the dating game or the marriage circle at a lack because you're completely satisfied by what Jesus has done to glorify God and to love other people. At the end of the day, that's what you're measured by, glorifying God and loving other people. And so to be ultra cliche here, stop looking for your soulmate because your only soulmate is Jesus. 
It sounds so terrible to say that, but that is in fact the point of Jesus. We look, we idolize relationships and we say, if I can get him, if I can have her, if I can get the ring and the house and the car and the family, then I will be content. And we say soulmate, like it's a cute thing. But the sad reality is, is when we talk about soulmate, we're really looking for something to actually satisfy our souls. And it's only Jesus who can do that. Now, this is a weird cell, and this is the bridge between singleness and marriage in the Bible. And that is that if it's so perfect for us, why would you want, why would you aspire to have a spouse? If we could be fully satisfied on our own, why would we want a spouse? And this is where it's important. We want it not because we would consider it, consider dating, consider marriage, not because we're at a lack, but because it actually enables us to glorify God and serve others in a completely unique way. Not a better way, not a more Christian way, a unique way. And that's because what marriage is a shadow of is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we're going to look at on Sunday again, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 25 through 27. Paul says this, and we're actually looking at a bigger chunk on Sunday. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So two reasons God gave us marriage. One, God wanted us to have the ability to make more people who would worship him. God is glorified through people worshiping him. And people come from, ask your parents, and when that happens, there are more people and that happens through marriage. God wants more people to worship him. And marriage is a means to do that, of making more people. The gospel is what makes them worship, but people are made through marriage. Secondly, he wants our marriage to represent the covenantal and committed love that Christ gave to the church. That is what the substance of your marriage is, is reflecting and mirroring the sun to which marriage is the shadow. The substance of which you, that marriage, would be the shape. So this unique situation of marriage is that you are in a unique place to glorify God because your marriage as husband is, and wife is representative of Christ in the church. Every marriage, Christian or not, between a man and a woman is a walking sermon. That that love that's not learned from science and is not justified by culture is woven into our hearts by the creator God that we ought to love and nurture one another as God loves and nurtures us. God wants to be glorified through that relationship. But secondly, marriages provide a unique sphere to serve someone else. Marriage is ultimately for the husband and for the wife about serving your spouse to make them more like Jesus. Marriage is the heavy and weighty, daily, momentary, hourly work of giving yourself to the good of your spouse in order to help them better glorify God and serve others. You see this pattern that is everywhere? (laughs) However we relate to people, we see the obligation and the challenge of glorifying God and loving other people. And in marriage, God gives this picture. The husbands are to lead 
and they are to lead like Christ leads. And how is that? The picture that Paul gives, it's not Christ coming back on a horse with a scepter and a sword like the triumphant knight. It's Christ on the cross leading by dying for his spouse. That's the leadership that you as a husband commit to take for your wife is leadership by death. And for the wives, Paul says that you ought to submit to your husband, not by silently pandering to them, not by being mindless or thoughtless, but by thoughtfully, just as the church is to Christ, helping their husband lead the wife and lead the family more and more into Jesus. The goal of the wife is to help the husband magnify Christ so that the wife can experience Christ in more and more places. The center of the husband's work is leading like Christ. The center of the wife's work is helping the husband to glorify Christ so that she might encounter and therefore increase the reach of Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about making much of Christ. And so that means for you, how many of you in here are not married? Great. Listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to this. If you are not glorifying God and serving others in singleness, you will not start in marriage. That's not how it works. Because if you think marriage fixes that, marriage is your savior. But marriage is just a picture of our savior. Jesus is the one who saves us so that we can serve him in all places uniquely for those God has called to marriage. So we do not seek out marriage to satisfy us. We seek out marriage to glorify God and serve in a committed, costly relationship another. Lastly, this is what we talked about, that your parents will teach to you. When you get married, you might have kids. And in that point, God wants us to. God wants us as married people to think about either making children or adopting children because God cares about kids. And if we want to parent well, we have to look to the gospel, right? So many times we think uh, we just talk about God is love and we should love like that. But if we want to parent well, we have to know the gospel, right? And not just, I know the gospel, I go to church. Like, no, you really have to know how is it that God loved you in the gospel if you want to parent well? Why? Because look at the language, the parental language Paul uses in the beginning of Ephesians when he says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God fathered you. You know Jesus because God fathered you by adopting you in Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. We all have to see what, pre- what existed before we existed. Before we were made, Isaiah said, you were made for God's glory. Before you were conceived, God said, you're going to glorify me. That's the goal of your life is to worship me. And then we see in Ephesians chapter five, before Adam and Eve were ever married in the first marriage, his marriage was meant to reflect Christ in the church. Before the first marriage, God had in mind the ultimate marriage of his people. 
And before Adam ever became a father, before I was ever a father in the mind of God, all parent-child relationships were meant to point us to the God who fathered us through Jesus Christ. Which means if you do not know how God has saved you through Jesus Christ, you cannot give away the parenting that we've received in Christ. So this means familially, we should parent like God. What this means is we don't parent as God. You are not God, but we parent like God. In other words, I want my children, when Lord willing, they worship God through their salvation to say, dad loved me like God loved me. What does that mean? Does that just mean, right? There's the, you talk about loving people, and right now what does our culture say about love? It means affirming everything they do. It's not disagreeing with them. I love that person too much. I'm just going to let them do what they're going to do. Who am I to tell you what to do? I love you. That's not the love God modeled for us. How did God love you in your salvation? He was long-suffering with you. How many of you came out of the womb worshiping God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Faith did, great. Uh, so faith ruins the illustration. Um, but for everyone else, God was long-suffering with us. We, we were born with a debt that we should have paid upon birth. But God didn't take us. Why? Because he was long-suffering with our sin. He didn't smite us in our anger, but he extended grace to us. But he also didn't ignore sin, for he punished it fully on Jesus. And even inside of that, he disciplines us because he loves us. He warns us when we were in danger and he loved us even when we were far from him. And for every step of your life, God had an eternal perspective. We ought to have an eternal perspective with our children. We parent them to the shore of eternity, preparing them to worship God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's the point in relating to an individual, in relating to your spouse, and in relating to your kids, you're already looking to something. You're looking to a sitcom. You're looking to a Netflix show. You're looking to the machismo man or the ultimate bride on Netflix. But the gospel calls us to look to Jesus, to consider deeply what went into the payment of that debt so that we can give it away to others. You must know and see the gospel to be saved and you must know and see the gospel with greater clarity if you want to find the satisfaction of glorifying God and, and serving other people in your life. It will not happen any other way. And here's the beautiful relief. You're going to fail. You will be an angsty, imperfect, discontent single person. You will be a married person who places obligations on your spouse that they can't meet and you will get frustrated with their lack of performance and you will leverage them temporarily for your own gain. You will be a parent who gives poor counsel, who disciplines uh, poorly and who loves imperfectly. But Jesus was the single man who unwaveringly glorified God and served others. Jesus was the husband who perfectly loved and served his spouse and graciously empowered the church to perfectly do what Jesus called the church to do. And God is the perfect father who has never wronged his children, but all the promises of God 
to his children, find their yes in Jesus Christ. You see, we don't look at Jesus and just try to live like him because we can't. We look to Jesus and we live like him in gratitude because he did. And there's nothing more beautiful than seeing how Jesus glorified God and served others. And we have the privilege every waking moment with every casual to intimate interaction of glorifying God and serving others and finding our joy in his joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the king has paid our debt. Lord, I pray for two things tonight. I pray that we experience the weight of lifetimes upon lifetimes upon lifetimes of debt that we cannot repay. To crush us so that we might feel the comfort that comes when we see that Jesus paid the debt for us. So that we might honor the king and give away that embarrassment of wealth to everyone else we see. Lord, it is costly to follow you with our relationships because it demands we think of ourselves last. But it is worth it because Jesus has given everything to us in him. Correct our hearts and our expectations so that we can glorify you and love other people for our joy, for their good, and for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.